0: I am Alon Ben-Mir and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is Dr. Yosef Ben-Mir, co-founder and president of the High Atlas Foundation in Morocco. You can find more information about Yosef on the page of this episode. Anyway, today's today, podcast is really unusual in many ways. And that, that, I'm doing it with my wonderful, incredibly intelligent son, oh, Yosef Ramir. Thank you. you. Uh, Yosef's specialty sustainable development. And he's been involved in this for nearly half a, half a decade. Half, Twenty-five years, right? Twenty-five years. Twenty-five years. It's amazing. So, if there's anyone who knows anything about sustainable development, you have to call, Yosef Ben me. Well,
1: <laughs> we could stop there. <laughs> Thank you. Uh,
0: no, seriously, you know, being, having been involved for so many years, specifically operating in the area where it's desperately needed, that is, sustainable development project, which I have so many difficult, different social, political, and economic implications. And I know that you have, um, from your own personal experience, have so much, you have seen so much, you have examined so much, you have talked to so many people over the years. And where where do these things, and and you know the importance of this, I needless to say. I mean, I I fully subscribe to to the whole idea that sustainable development, in my view, is probably the most important thing today to deal with all kind of issues, specifically conflict resolution, economic disparities, starvation, mm-hmm. unemployment, health care, education, mm-hmm. all of that can be directly and indirectly impacted by whether a country is devoting itself to sustainable development. Yeah. So, ta- talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Well, it's absolutely true, and what allows it to be sustainable and address all the areas that you said is occurs when people's participation becomes the emphasis. and that's really the key. Sustainability is synonymous with community participation, responding to pri- responding to the priorities that local people express, what they prioritize, um, and that requires, local dialogue and catalyzing and assisting that discussion and so thankfully um, I work in a country now that in Morocco that champions that idea and its laws and its policies. Now the implementation is a whole other area of discussion but if, if we work in a place where you know local associations can be created and community participation is is championed, then really sustainability becomes possible.
0: Yeah. Now, but tell me, from uh, you know, it's taking. You know, for example, we are looking at a certain project, and you're taking that project and trying to implement it. What are the repercussions? What comes out of such a project in terms of social, economic development?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing is that. Um, The community needs to want it. So let's assume that that invitation to um, to an organization that says, "Hey, come to our community, um, assist our process," Uh, so that will assuming that will is there, and that invitation is forthcoming. And then, are they committed to an inclusive dialogue, women and men, young and old? Um, people who have land, people who don't, are they, you know, so assuming too then that it's a, it's, you know, all demographics are part of that discussion, including locally elected leaders, uh, members of civil society, people who own businesses. And so if you're able to have that first, that will and that community wants that process to occur and they engage in it, then what's possible? Well, then the relationships become um, productive, and partnerships occur, and understanding, because they're sharing information and knowledge. And so even before the implementation of the project, whether it's clean drinking water, or a new business, or um, training programs, or literacy programs, whatever it may be, the the as that project becomes identified, so too that empowerment begins. So we don't necessarily have to Yes, it has to generate income and measurable benefits, but the process of doing so is also part of the change.
0: So, for example, I'm sure you have undertaken, you have in the past, many such projects. Can you, can you cite one where you have this participatory of the various communities that got together, that chose their own project? Such an example, and what were the repercussions, the implications, the consequences, the results of such an such an effort, by you know number of communities mm-hmm. that got together and agree, this is what we want.
1: Well, I'll give an example in the Marrakesh region. Um, there's a part of the region is uh, mining occurs. Uh, Morocco provides twenty percent of the world's phosphate, and so that mining company called OCP approached the Hyatless Foundation, our organization, and said, look, we've we've conducted mining activities in this area. We want to give back to the people. And so here's a certain amount of money and identify those communities that need it most and, um, and work with them. So it's really, you're given, in this case, and more and more donors are doing it this way, you're given a pot of money without the knowledge beforehand of what you're going to implement they want you to go into an area and find out what the people want and then dedicate those resources toward that goal that the communities have set for themselves so we go through in that case we went through a process of six months well where's the who has been impacted by mining and among all of those communities who has Who has the greatest need? Who's the most remote? Where is the most joblessness? Where is the least opportunity? And so we, in in ourselves, we go through that assessment process, and then um, in this case, um, you would, you can imagine that there are a lot of communities where you're, you're approached, they're approached, and a process begins, and yet, you know, they go through community planning, and then whoever catalyzed that process leaves. And so in this case, there, it took us time to develop trust with the community. And that, or between identifying the community that was in greatest need and developing trust, that was six months. And, so, and then the community does, you know, it's a traditional rural area, so we'll, women and men sit together. And, uh, you know, so to really get to a point where it's inclusive and everyone is in the room and people are talking about what they want you know what's most important to them a lot of months go by right and so in this case um, the priorities that they identified was uh, olive tree orchards and uh, a classroom with bathrooms now in this province you can there are more than a hundred schools with no bathrooms Wow um, you you know how and that uh, the World Bank puts it at suppresses girls participation by sixteen percent so just by Installing water, having clean drinking water and bathrooms, you increase girls' education experience. You have parents having to make a decision. Do we send our daughters to school today or do we send them to go fetch water 10 kilometers away? And so, you know, water is about infant mortality and health. And it's also about uh, girls' education directly. So um it was we received from the OCP group about $200,000 uh with which we planted about 12,000 olive trees and that required digging wells. So we also were able to plant it in an area that wasn't um cultivated. irrigated, yeah. wasn't cultivated and yeah. so we had to dig wells, which is about $10,000 a well. We had to dig two of those. We installed pumps, um the pressure drip systems. In that case, usually we build nurseries. But in this case, we bought mature trees, which are more expensive than seeds. And then we built, uh, we built a classroom, a teacher's dorm. So teachers, that's another thing in rural areas, teachers, they're coming from the cities, they don't want to live in remote villages. And so they travel. But when there's, you know, during the winter season, there's rain, roads are washed out, you can, teachers won't show up for two weeks. Uh, just because they, they have a 40-minute commute and the road becomes inaccessible during the winter months. And so here we built a, a teacher's house and, uh, you know, again, the water sanitation issue of bathrooms. And so, you know, the key part of this is we didn't pay for labor. We bought, so that $200,000, and we did other things with that money, but as well for other commun- neighboring communities. But when communities identify what they want... They, they'll they plant the trees if you bring them,
0: you know. And they do that without payment.
1: Without payment. They maintain the trees, they irrigate, okay. and so forth.
0: Because in the end, it's theirs. It's theirs. And that's their main game. That's the, that's the key.
1: And so also building a classroom. They want their children, daughters, and sons to go to school. You know, it's very rare. You know, often we think, yes, there are families that even given the option of sending their daughters, they may not. But that's become really, really few. When given the opportunity to send their daughters to school, they will. And if that takes building bathrooms with their, you know, it's you know, I consider, you know, fortunately in our lives, we just went to the faucet that we've had water. Although I don't know in Baghdad, did you have to get water? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we're talking about the late 30s, though, and early 40s, so, yeah. you know, it's worth asking. But... Um, it's really hard work. It's you know fifty kilo bags of cement. You have to bring them to a remote spot, usually up on a hill, uh, and and uh, you have to mix it with sand and to and do. No up, roads,
0: no real transportation. No, exactly.
1: And, yeah. and and even you know, of course, you know what it is to plant a tree. You've you've done your share of millions in your life, but <laughs> uh, but also a meter by meter hole is not yeah. easy to dig yeah. when oh, you have. You know, thousands to do. And so
0: the tools, need. the
1: tools, and, and so forth. And, and so we get, that's the community contribution, which is really significant. And, and so this is years now. We've, uh, fortunately, we've done projects all the time. We have dozens now occurring. But this was about five or six years ago. And, um, it, it go, and it goes, and actually, since then, too, one of our counterparts, at that time, a community member has been elected president of its municipality. And so one of the things too, is we realize that um, there's a lot of goodwill that's generated when you respond to the people. And this person realized that and realized too how he would govern if he were president and ran and and won. And so he's very much a community participatory, Elected official.
0: So you mentioned the word empowerment, and I don't exactly know what you mean. Can you explain How such a project, in fact, empower the people?
1: That's such a good question, and because there are actually people, officials that um, don't prefer that word because it does mean different things to different people. But it is an operational word. It is something that we can define. And one of the keys, well, what we've learned is that in our in our early years, we thought that decision making—if we had the authority, the opportunity, the responsibility to make decisions for ourselves, for our families, with our community—then there therein is empowerment.
0: That's empowerment, and exactly it, it,
1: but what we've also discovered was that, particularly in the situation of traditional areas where there's, um, where there's patriarchal patterns of, of behavior, um, that even when we're given the opportunity to make decisions, are we making the decisions that really suit our interests? And so for us, there's a prior stage to when we embark on decision-making, and that is self-discovery what are my, you know, in my own life, what are the things that maybe inhibit me? Or what did I experience that causes pain, emotional pain, or or um, situations of being taken advantage of, or even abused? And so there's a prior stage to decision-making, and that is looking at those aspects in our lives that result in our making decisions or or thoughts that don't enhance ourselves that or or that undermine our confidence
0: exactly yeah
1: and so we go through a 4-day 32-hour um workshop experience it's called imagine and its founders are actually from upstate new york but they do this we adapted it to morocco's context and um they've applied this methodology in most countries in the middle east and so between so between case studies and Morocco's experience, we've sort of fashioned and imagined in our context, and so that those 32 hours are really just about that. Through a group, through through personal and group experience, let's let's discover and address our inhibitions that keep us from any you know that frees us from doubt and external control, so that when really we ha- we can make decisions about our development, we're making it with the most free possible perspective. We, d- we can dream. Let's dream. And what is... It? You know, we can ask that question on the first day to a group. What, what are your dreams? And there won't be an answer. Mm-hmm. Well, one is they have never been asked. But number two is, I've never been able to allow, leave the village by myself my whole life. And I've never been... I never had opportunity to study or, you know, all of these things. And it's hard to think in terms of dreams. But after those four days, we can think in terms of dreams. And
0: then, of course, you're taking that into the practical aspect. When this decision is made, and the decision is their decision. And when they make their own decisions, obviously they are far more devoted and more committed to do the kind of work because it's their decision and the project belong belong to them. Exactly. Now, you know... You know only too well how critical this whole subject is. Why is it then, from your perspective, government officials in various countries, you have visited so many of them, don't understand how important it is to provide basic funding to organizations like yours. Basic funding. How far can you take a million dollars, for example, and I understand from previous conversation with you, you're having these difficulties. What it is that they don't understand? Why is it that this is so an uphill battle to get the kind of money that you need which is probably the most um, critically uh, financing project that will have the greatest yield to any society, just about everywhere, specifically in underdeveloped countries.
1: Yeah. Well, um, first, to say that uh, you're absolutely right. It, it, when we look at evaluations, the only thing that comes close to as important as finance is participation. And so, if, you know, we can have participation, but unless there's finance, how are we going to. And when communities will give their labor in kind, in, in the end, you still, it still requires purchases and, and investment. One of the things that, you know, I've gone through a lot of years believing that it's just really really hard it's hard to get to remote areas and um, sit with the people and develop the trust that's needed to find out really what they want you know what what is it they you know what is most important to them and so are those agencies public agencies um, publicly financed banks uh, private institutions are they going out to where funding and opportunity is most needed and spending the time and energy that it takes to listen to the people. And so my first response is that's that's not happening.
0: So so this is very very important point here making very very important because I really was not aware of this particular angle you're taking that is if they are not aware what it takes they are not motivated to give is that what you're saying? or or how to
1: give or what or to, give to give to
0: So how about uh, did you try to bring that scene to them that is to the potential yeah. contributor yeah could you bring that scene to
1: them? Th- that's such a
0: good point in, in, in terms given the technology yeah. we have today yeah why not take
1: yeah.
0: the camera the, the crew to people to talk to people to look at the geography to look at the condition and bring it to the would-be, um, uh, contributor to these
1: that, that, That's such a, well, for one thing, I we see ourselves, an important function of what we do is to be that advocacy point, whether through film or visual or going to the capital or going to the provincial regional centers and talking to these leaders, uh, these heads of agencies about what people are saying. We have someone full-time that all she does is write letters and develop uh, you know documents that convey the voice to the people to different government agencies it's a huge part uh, and writing articles as you do uh, you do on a policy level on a, on a peace on a national international peace level and we do on a on a level that conveys the voices of what people are saying So then,
0: i'm talking and i know this is very important in terms of visual that is, for example, going to communities with, with a cell phone for that matter. Doesn't require massive technology. And you know, project. Yeah. You know, take the the videos about what so that the, the would be contributor can see, look at this is the reality. Look what you can do with money. Look what we've done with this amount of money. Look what you can do with it. Is it being done? Yeah, it is. And,
1: and well first um, I'm glad you're saying it because it is, you know, it's, uh, you, you've made it more, uh, I'm feeling more urgency to do it when you say <laughs> it, <laughs> but we do it. And, and one of the things we were interested, we were just approached by the foundation of Credit Agricole, which is Morocco's publicly financed bank to create a video, uh, to do the kind of thing you're saying. But I, I just want to convey one quick sort of experience that, which is to your point that, um, We recently had a meeting with the head of a bank, a a Moroccan bank. And um, at the end, he uh, he had said to us that um, we, we have the money, we're just not getting the proposals. And so there are two things that, you know, that we said in response to that. Number one is that when in rural areas, when you have more than 90% of women's illiteracy and more than 70% of men's illiteracy, and these proposals are intricate, they require you know, a very serious level of technical and writing and, and uh, conceptual ability to convey you know, different levels of information, how are we going to expect people to come up with that kind of document that they can then consider? And so one of the things, uh, there's another point I want to make in our response, to but one of the things that that bank is now doing is to um, allow farmers to come in and speak the proposal. And so this idea of co-creation, USAID is doing it now in northern Iraq to help um, make more secure the Christian communities who are suffering there. Um, and so there's now a more of appreciation you would you would imagine you would think it would happen sooner but this idea of co-creation of proposals is now coming up the other thing that you know I, I had said to this head of the bank and I having just come from a rural area and you know you you know I, I want to say dad dad <laughs> <laughs> okay. you have to understand that you know 25 years you're hearing the people say we need an irrigation canal we need clean drinking water, and when you hear that for twenty-five years, and you know that in, that irrigation canal will increase their arable land by a third or a half, and you, it, which is serious increase in income, and you, and a head of a head of a bank telling you, well, we don't have viable proposals and projects, you feel a little boil in your body, and, and, and you know, and then you, you, and then you say, you know, and and I said, how could that be? How could, knowing that, you know, decade after decade, generations of people are saying, we need these canals, and that these canals will not only contain water in a very arid, relatively arid country, but but increase their, their yield. And so it's, yes, to the disconnect, yes, to illiteracy being a factor, yes, to all of these things, but sometimes you just you know, does that justify inaction for 40, 50 years? You know, that's when you become to really wonder what other factor is out there that's preventing money, which people are saying is there. The heads of the agencies and the heads of, of agencies of money are saying money is there. And yet it's not going back, going to where it belongs. It's just, you know, in a way, it's inexplicable. I haven't there is there's an there's a there's an element to this that you can't quite explain. Because if I know it as an American, as a non-Moroccan, and I know it to my core that the people want these things, how could it be that heads of agencies who are Moroccan and who have lived with this issue their whole lives cannot um, you know point to where the money and, and make sure it gets there?
0: Where is the disconnect,
1: you You know, the, the, one, the one thing, I, I, the disconnect, maybe, and I think people are beginning to feel it, in Morocco at least, and certainly other nations of the region have since 2011 or perhaps um, prior because of the, the uprisings that are occurring. But maybe it's just the feeling of total urgency, Maybe they're not feeling, they are feeling more urgency now than they did two, three, four, five years ago. But maybe that level needs to be ratcheted up. And it needs to be. And there is total urgency. You know, it's um, when Morocco passed in 2004 400 articles that um, promote the status of women, that make sure they don't marry before 18 years old that prevent men from taking more than one wife without the uh, agreement of the first wife, that, all, uh, that promote I- their economic development, and all of these things. And yet, 94% of rural women in our work have never heard of these laws that are intended to enhance, that are human rights, that, that if they g- do experience abuse, what are their recourses? Well, they don't know. And
0: to what you attribute that,
1: Ninety-four percent?
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, this is the, obviously the government is not making uh, the effort, putting the effort necessary to convey, to enlighten, to educate these areas. So what is it going to take?
1: You, well, uh, well, let's look at the alternative. The, alternatively, 100% of the urban women have heard of these laws. And so I think one of the things that's happening in Morocco, which points to this... You know to the issue is that the, there's a extreme urban rural divide um, so one of you you the, the question is the what explains um, how there are financial resources and yet they're not going to where they're most needed one of the th- one of the things that we're seeing year after year and statistics are showing that there's a a very serious level of urban-rural divide within Morocco, the level of development, the level of opportunity, and it's, it's um, you know, whereas as I described generations of rural families and communities calling for the same project, and yet you're seeing urban transformation, you know, what accounts for that? And so it, it's very, you know, it's very hard to, there's many factors that you can say, yeah. but um, and you can look at the total of them and say, well, this is why. But I still think that um, it's still inexcusable. You know, I'm sorry to use that word, but it's, yeah. it's you know, why should uh, entire municipalities ha- not have a single girl go to school after primary, primary school? Not, no girls going to school after 12 years old. And yet they're expected to not marry before 18, when they've been sitting at home between 11 and 16. And, and so I'm looking at myself, if I haven't gone to school in five years, and I'm 16 years old, and I have an opportunity to get married, I, I'm not sure I would say no, because you want some kind of change in your life. You want some kind of opportunity in your life. You can't just sit at home, you know? Yeah. And so ther- therefore, and we would have these conversations with young women, our team does
0: but listen i want to uh, how do you want to relate this to 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 the work you're doing the foundation you're doing is there any relationship between the two obviously there must be that is there's lack of uh, they don't get the information albeit it is there yeah they are they're basically they're remaining in the dark because they, they don't see and what they don't hear when they learn obviously they're not going to act on anything yeah now, but the, your foundation, the, the High Atlas Foundation, obviously is playing the, the role, the, the in-between role, that is between those who have the funds and those who need the funds need the money to yeah. execute this project. right. What, what are the from your own experience in the last few years, anything that stands out that way you say you bridged that gap and you created something that the source, resources were there, the needs were there, and you did something, and it did happen. Yeah.
1: Well, right now we're going through that in the Sahara. Um, Their uh, water is, of course, the primary issue, particularly in the rural municipalities. And so, um, wells were prioritized, chateaus, water towers. Um, and also, you know, interestingly, there's a municipality called Jerifia. And three years ago, the uh, local people report that uh, three Moroccans, they, so not from the region, not uh, native to the region, but visiting, uh, were lost in that desert and died. And so, one of the things that they feel that would have saved them was if, if the well had a light, they could have spotted it in the dark. And so, one of the things that we're doing is that we're installing solar pumps with lights at the wells. Um, And so all of these ideas came from the people. And so our job is to work with Siemens um, Solar Energy, the German uh, corporation who want to help. And so we've been able to um, be that conduit between the two. Uh, What is it that the people want? And Siemens also is dedicated to water and um, clean, you know, green energy and so forth. And so it's fit within it, the, the people's needs and the mission of Siemens fit. And so we were just able to, really, it's just about dialogue. And I tell you, I've had meetings with them in, in, in Casablanca. And it's literally, um, you know, uh, uh, it, the phone with, with people from the Drifia or our project manager who's from the area, um, they're on the phone. And it's just about conversation. What are, the, what are the people in the, on the field? What, are people, what, are the, what does the community say? And they're, you know, and Siemens is hearing it directly, and let's make it happen. And so you're, we're lucky to be able to have partners like that that really are just about realizing what people identify themselves. And those kinds of partners are, if we look at through the years, they're becoming more and more. They're realizing that we can't define what's important in a, in a distant area, that we need to listen. And donors who want their money to be successful, they're looking for sustainability, and they realize that they're not going to have it unless they respond to what people express for themselves.
0: Now, you know, the, in the Middle East, obviously, there are many millions and, and tens of millions are poor, despondent, and they needless to say, are in terrible need of sustainable development. And you've been invited, I understand, to Saudi Arabia, to Egypt, and you went there. Can you tell me the nature of the, what did you say, what did you do, or how was that received? Well, in, in Saudi
1: Arabia, it was a very interesting experience in that um, the I was invited by the King's Housing Foundation to speak about how they can promote their public housing sector. And um, of course, you know, no surprise that, you know, our, my perspective, our perspective is that of the community. How do we engage? So the housing is for a certain demographic of people. How can we in- involve them, not just in the layout of the buildings, but even the design of the homes themselves and to talk about that with, with them? And um, alternatively, there are voices there that took a more technical Point of view, that it's about technology and, you know, how can we, and efficiency and those kinds of things. And so it really became a debate. And one of the the head of the housing agency at the time, um, Iliad Medani, who became Secretary General of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, um, he was very sympathetic to the community driven point of view. And one of the things he said to me at the end was that we need to think about how the community participatory approach, which involves decentralization and local empowerment, how that resonates with Islamic concepts and precepts. And so really since that time, um, I've been very interested in that very subject. And you know, I've been interested from a point of view from... You know, finding these elements in ancient philosophies, in 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 the Bible, and you know, because these are timeless ideas. But how it resonates directly with the the Islamic experience is is very fascinating, and it's something that we need to um, really put a lot of concentration on. There's been a lot of effort on how, why is it it's Islamic to address climate change. And hundreds of imams have come together on a charter that says, to you know, within Islam, to, to as a Muslim, we must, um, you know, do what we can to mitigate the effects of climate change. But we need to do the similar kind of work of why it is in fact Islamic and to empower the local, and it is. And so that's one of the things that I I carry with me from that and. Um, uh, and 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 from Egypt, if I could just
0: yeah, I'd like to know what what your, what was your experience in Egypt?
1: In, in Egypt, one of the things that was organized by uh, European Union Commission that was particularly concerned about the status, the issue of water in Egypt, but in the region. And you know, it, the Middle East imports as a as a as a proportion imports the externally the, its food. Necessities, the most in the world, as and also its water aquifers are are like reaching the twenty five percent level, just really desperate levels. And one of the things I walked away from Egypt, there was also um, the Cairo food show. So we know about the fancy food show, which is international and I think the largest in the world. Well, the Africa has created its food show, and and its host has been Cairo. Uh, And so uh, we were able to bring Moroccan product there, which you would think, you know, Morocco being part of Africa, of course, there would be large representation, but there wasn't. And that is because the price of Moroccan prices really don't compete with their, are high Moroccan product. uh, Domestic Moroccan prices are very high and are not really competitive as they could be on a South South level. But, but just to say, I walked away from the, the, Conference part of the Cairo experience, we're just realizing that the the level of not of, of urgency from a environmental point of view, from a water point of view, from a food security point of view, you know, when Saudi Arabia is is um, producing its food uh, necessities in other parts of the world to bring to Saudi Arabia, including in Arizona, which I understand there's a content. Arizona is arid. And so they're growing Saudi wheat, wheat for Saudi Arabia and Arizona. I mean, so there are these kinds of situations that are going on, which adds to the precariousness. You know, of course, the situation of war and, and you know, the struggles between nations and people in the region. But that the underlying and not just underlying, but that eminent factor of, of water and food security is such... Um, an ever-present, ever-worrisome and growing concern. And so I, I took away my time in Egypt just realizing that, you know, we need to act and and um, we need to support communities in their action because they know they are wonderful natural resource managers uh, from a traditional century point of view. And so can we give them the, the, just the materials? You know, often the know-how is there. You know they know water containment. They understand pressure drip systems and you know uh, gravity flow and uh, ha- you know efficiency of water and all of these things. But can they have the materials? Can they be given the materials they need in order to be as um, wonderful stewards of the earth as they can? And so that's really you
0: know. just uh, one one question related to water. Uh, obviously, uh, they are aware of desalination, right? Have you seen any uh, major project of desalination? And I know there are seven or eight major ones in Saudi Arabia, and they don't really have hardly any water. But that, where, where do you see that? Are they, is there is any kind of focus on desalination in order to produce the quantities needed for agriculture,
1: um, or is it
0: or that could be part, for example, of a a project that you would be undertaking? Could could be,
1: you know. Um my so i visited a desalinization plant in uh the sahara um and it was for drinking water and the cost per unit was really high uh, per liter um i believe it came out to a dollar 20 per liter and so you know right now we can buy water for less in new york city uh you know in 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 a typical store. And so um, I, my, my understanding, my feeling is that countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, countries like Israel, countries that have that kind of financial opportunity, technology technology can, you know, it could make financial sense. I think for, you know, but it's very hard to make the financial case so far in Morocco. It's, but again, I'm not, that's my short experience with it. Um, but I know Morocco is still, you know, Morocco has been lauded as it should uh, for its green energy investments, particularly in solar and wind. Um, and I know there's a lot of uh, discussion around desalinization. Let's see where, how it goes. Mm-hmm. But right now, I think the cost has been a- prohibitive for a lot of places.
0: Now, they us tell me, suppose I was, I'm a potential contributor and you came to try to make a case so that I would be motivated enough to give your foundation a contribution. Can you make the case?
1: Well, thank you for asking that. Um, You know, one of the things, a a major thing that keeps me engaged in Morocco after all of these years is that the nation is trying to do the right thing on many different levels, on, on the important levels that People's participation is in its laws, that multiculturalism and the ethnic all the ethnicities that make up the nation are in its constitution, that women's empowerment and uh, protections and opportunities and promotion is also in it is codified, Uh, that decentralization is also within Article One of its constitution and part of its policy policy. fabric and so in and, and other areas too. And so when you look at all of these things and you, then you look at to the region and say, you know, Morocco is exceptional and it truly is. And, and so if we can, but there's a difference between having that and actualizing it. And so the highest foundation is actually achieving what is Moroccan. We have human development projects that are multicultural. We, we, our mission and all that we do is based on community participation. We actualize decentralization through the partnerships and the, the avenues of cooperation that we build. And so if, if we can make this across the board in Morocco, if in fact participation is not just in laws, but our reality in the nation, and that, um, that gender justice and equality is in fact true, and real for everyone, and that all uh, and that Muslim, Jewish, Christian unity and diversity toward their human development is part of our everyday. Then, if, if all of these things become part of life, then what does that mean for Africa to have that example? And what does that mean for the Middle East to have that kind of example? And so, therefore, by helping the Hylas Foundation, you are helping Morocco achieve itself. Achieve what it's want, what it wants, and to be in a nation with the wind behind your back in that kind of way. We're not looking to alter Morocco's laws. Isn't that a joy? You know, we don't have to convince policymakers of the you know sustainable development. And in the early '90s, we did. I know. I know the difference between being afraid to say the word empowerment and now speaking it freely. And so you know. Um, and so that's what I would say to anyone that would consider giving to the Hylas Foundation. You are giving to sustainability, to to those who most need it. And you're giving to a nation that could actually be a light unto nations by, by its laws becoming real for everyone, becoming applied and accessible and tangible in everyone's life. But in
0: particular, the, the impact on the individuals that is... Um... The, these type of projects, how they impact directly yeah. on the day-to-day life of every single individual. Yeah.
1: You know, just if I may say something to that, um, one of the things we're doing now is, so, okay, say agricultural development. We're doing it with teenage boys who are locked up for relatively minor crimes. They may have stolen something, they may have been in, in a violent uh, you know, experience, um, but they're confined for six months. And so who do we train in order to manage tree nurseries or in order to certify organic or measure for carbon credit offsets, or to help the laws for building a cooperative, we are training those that, you know, uh, that really need it. So if these young boys leave without skills, which is what's happening and they go through, and we know what in our country, in all countries, what it means to once be locked up and then not be in that that alienation, you're ostracized. You're not the first to be employed. And so what does that mean in a country where, you know, it's already tough on youth employment, and yet it even compounded more because they have gone through this experience as teenagers? And and so we are going for the most vulnerable. And, and so therefore, if you're really concerned about... Um, you know, young people losing their way and losing their direction, and what that could mean, you know, for Morocco and what they may do outside of Morocco. If that's a concern of yours, then I would really say, help us achieve our agricultural development by, via these young people, and via. Imagine this also, Dad. That um, fruit tree agriculture has traditionally been in the domain of men. Well, why can't women grow tree nurseries? And gain from all of that. That you know, it's far more lucrative than um, traditional wheat and corn. And so we we are able to overcome these gender barriers to production by empowering women to be the agricultural stewards, not just men. And so that's the other key part of what I'm. So when I say multiculturalism our nursery land comes from the government. It comes from municipalities and schools, which are also unique models, but it also comes from the Moroccan Jewish community. We're given land by the Moroccan Jewish community next to their ancient burial sites. They have, you know, Salihin in Arabic, saints, Hebrew saints buried. And next to the saints are empty land. And the Moroccan Jewish community has given the highest foundation, these empty lands to build, Fruit tree nurseries for farming families of, of the region of the immediate region and beyond who who are Muslim and so you, you know one thing is to say agricultural development another thing is to say it's doing it in a way of interfaith it's doing it in a way to generate income for women it's doing it in a way so that young teenage boys have opportunities in their lives and and it's and it's you know it's meaningful it really is it's incalculable in a way because I go to these places and I see outcomes that surprise me that you know how agriculture leads to literacy how um an opportunity for a boy related to agriculture has made him a better you know his family now relates to him and speaks with him and it's changed his family relationships and so the consequences are, are 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 carry forward in ways you can't always predict.
0: Well thank you, you said, no, for thank taking you, the time. I'm, I'm really I too, appreciate yeah. it. I think it's great. What I'd like to do is I have a follow up uh in a three, four weeks. I really want to good, uh, good. To, to also speak about specific project because as you so eloquently said it, the implications, the repercussions, the the, the of sustainable development is so wide-ranging from the benefit that every individual, man, woman, child, benefit, uh, so, so, the society benefits, social cohesiveness, cohesiveness is, is developing, empowerment takes place, uh, wealth is built, there is so much that can happen, is happening, if people only understand the implication, the importance of what it takes, specifically nowadays, where there's so much poverty, so much pain, so much agony, so much in so many different places, specifically in the Arab world, which is of concern to you and me for so many decades now. Thank you again. We'll, we'll convene again right. in a month.
1: Well, I, I, I should say this, that no one, I mean, uh, all of Alon Ben-Mir's kids adore him completely and love <laughs> his soul and him entirely. And everyone out there should know that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.